with me to First uh, Corinthians 12, and I'm just going to step back in our slideshow here um, and talk about our helper. You know, when Jesus uh, got ready to depart, he said, it's needful that I go so that another comforter can come, another helper, another uh, paraclete, the one who comes along beside, and he'll be with you, and he will be in you. Isn't that wonderful? That God knows what we need, and he knows... Uh, He's left us with a mission that's bigger than what we can accomplish. And I would just challenge you with something, that God always calls us to things that are bigger than us. And if they're not, then we can, we can start to think that we did it in our own strength and power, and we can start to get an elevated ego and, and think the whole thing depends upon us. But when you realize it's just out of reach, it's beyond our grasp, it's beyond our ability to, uh, to uh, meet the need, then you realize that it has to be if it works, it has to be God working. And so I would encourage us with that, that if God is calling you to something and you're kind of a little bit freaked out about it, that it may be that that's a good place to be because it calls us to dependence upon him. You understand what I mean by scared? Scared because we can't do it in our own power, but it propels us to trust him so that we can trust him for what he would want to do. I want to talk to you about uh, something we touched on last week in the message from Pentecost. Uh, and the gift, it's the gift of the Spirit, and it has two parts to it. And I'd like you to think about those questions that we, we mentioned in just uh, a moment. We'll, we'll try to come back and answer those uh, in, a, in a more direct way. But I'd like you to think about this passage from Pentecost. We, we talked about it last time, and uh, there's two parts to it. This is the latter part, Acts 2.21. It says, And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord... It will be saved. I'd like you just to think in your mind, everyone or all. Can you keep that um, locked away for just a moment? We're going to make a comparison here. And so there's this first aspect. I think what Peter has in mind in Acts chapter 2 was the, uh, the coming of the Spirit and what that would mean to the church, that a new era was promised to the Old Testament prophets, that it had finally come. And it meant that God would dwell with his people in a new way. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit kind of came upon the people that were there and empowered them with gifts. And Peter begins to speak up to the crowd as the crowd gathered in. And he tells them that this is what was prophesied by Joel. But Joel's not the only one that prophesied it. Jeremiah also prophesied the coming of the Spirit that would revolutionize how we interact with God. Okay, So he's talking about how the Spirit changes thing. And it means, it means that God is going to dwell with people in a new way. In fact, it was an invitation into an access with God, which was rarely available in times prior to the cross. I don't know if you've thought about this, but when you read through those sections in Scripture that describe the sacrificial system, does anybody thank God that we don't have to go through that anymore? Aren't you glad that we don't have to follow all these little uh, regulations in order to approach God. What he's done in Jesus is take care of all of that for us. He fulfilled it for us so that we can have relationship with God. We can come boldly before the throne because Jesus shed his blood so that we could. And we ought to be grateful for that, I think. That none, of, none of us brought our sheep to church to sacrifice. I don't think so. If you did, <laughs> uh, you came to the wrong place. Because we've already got that taken care of in Christ. He's offered us a new way. In fact, uh, it's an invitation into an access with God, which was rarely available. 
And what the prophets had before Christ, all believers can have after Christ because the Spirit will be poured out in a new way. And so Peter quotes this prophecy from Joel, and it ends with this verse in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, and Joel chapter 2, it's a different verse, but uh, it's talking about everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, we know that saved means to be rescued from our sins and rescued from uh, the consequence of our sins and rescued from our sinful passions, right, and rescued from the judgment of God and all of those things. Salvation's a big word, isn't it? Are, do you Have you come to realize that? Like getting saved at first might have meant when you're first coming to the altar, I'm getting away from this conviction feeling. Anybody relate to that? Like I just got to go up there because my heart is burning. I know I'm in the wrong and I got to go deal with this. But you realize that when you get there, that salvation's so much bigger than that. That's part of it. But it's so much bigger than that, isn't it? And, and we find out uh, how deep it is and deeper every day what God has accomplished for us in salvation. So this is the first thing that uh, Peter is talking about. And we dealt with that last week about how uh, Jesus in the coming of Christ and in the coming of the Holy Spirit that we're, we're new and transformed people. But then there's a second part to this and actually precedes it in the sermon that Peter preaches, and it's this. In the last days, God says, Joel's the one who said it, but it was God who inspired it. So God said it. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Remember what the last verse said? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the category for both of these scriptures is, is anyone and everyone or all. Isn't that wonderful? God's not saying, well, anymore, I'm, I'm selecting a certain segment of people, and I'm going to pour out my spirit upon them. It's not just upon particular prophets. It's not just upon a uh, lineage of priesthood. Now it's something that's an invite to everyone. I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters. Just, let's go slow here. Sons and daughters, not just you, but on your kids. That wonderful? Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And I always laugh here because I think it's because the old men are taking naps and God can speak to them during that time. When I was a kid, I hated naps. I love them. When you get a chance to take a nap, it's nice. Sometimes God has to slow you down enough, get you in a restful state, and <laughs> that mind quits turning, then he can really speak to you. Anybody relate to that? But I'd like you to notice here that it's not restricted by age. Like in, in times past, maybe we would expect uh, those who are older to be the ones that are being used by God in spiritual things. But this is saying you're young and you're old. See how that crosses categories? Not just one narrow section. It's everybody. I want to tell you today, if you're, a, if you're a teenager in here, God can use you in big ways. God can anoint you to do big things for him. You're not... You're not uh, excluded because you haven't yet arrived at age 18. When you're age 18, your parents will sign a waiver, and God can pour his spirit upon you. No, it's not like that. And God was dealing with Samuel even at a young age, but this is, this is something uh, more incredible altogether. I'd like you to notice, even upon my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Do you see another category here that potentially uh, could limit no, I can only pour out my spirit on men. I'm sorry, ladies, uh, you get excluded from this. No, this is men and women. God's going to use you. 
in big ways. I'll pour out my spirit upon men and women. Uh, and then it talks about my men servants and maid servants. And I'm not seeing that up there, but, uh, well, it is. Even on my servants, both men and women, will I pour out my spirit in those days. And some would argue from that particular portion, servants could be attached to the fact that there are those within Israel's past that were servants that were not Jewish, they were Gentile. And so it even crosses, and we know this from other scriptures, definitely into the Jewish-Gentile thing, that God is pouring out his spirit upon all flesh, and that is implied as well. So this is a, a, really, uh, a really big deal in terms of what God wants to do in our lives. He doesn't just want to uh, save us and mark us as his own and get us safely to his heavenly kingdom. He does want to do that, but he doesn't only want to do that. Are you with me? There are some people that are that come to the altar and they're just hanging on for heaven and God's not using them or they're not allowing God to use them. They're not really doing anything except for just trusting and holding on and hoping to get there. You know, and I think that that's a very limited view of salvation. And if we're living at that level, I'm telling you that's not all that there is. There's so much more. So, uh, also I'd like you to notice here, I will pour out my spirit. They will prophesy. So now we have the Spirit falling upon people and there being some kind of a, uh, a usage of those individuals. They surrender themselves to God. You will prophesy, you will see visions, you will dream dreams. This isn't intended to be the exhaustive list of things that are going to happen to you when the Spirit comes upon you. Do you understand that this is only a sampling where Joel is saying there's going to be supernatural things that happen among you when the Spirit of God comes upon your life. Okay, you understand that's just a sampling because we find out in other places there's so much more that God can do. More, much more. And are you happy for that? I hope you would be, except it comes with responsibility. So I'd like you to notice uh, that the first thing that we mention here, uh, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That has to do with a new kind of relationship with God, that we're welcomed in, we're reconciled, we're brought back into fellowship. The second thing that's mentioned here is uh, has to do with the person of the Holy Spirit uh, walking with you and bringing you into a new kind of ministry. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he gives us this, this new kind of ministry. Anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord is saved, has the Holy Spirit. Okay, are you with me on that? In some teachings, that's not the case. They think that, no, you're not, you don't have the Holy Spirit until you've spoken with tongues. And I'm here to tell you, that's not true. If you've trusted in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Anyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit is not a child of God. Paul is very clear on that. So if you're trusting in, in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. It uses this, uh, this word for indwell, and I'm not going to try to say it because I'd butcher it, but the, the Greek word means to remain in a place, to live in, to dwell in, to reside in. You get the idea. The Holy Spirit comes when you say yes to Jesus and takes up residence in your life. He's not just coming to visit on Sundays. Like when you come to church, I'm here, Holy Spirit, come visit me. No, he's there to dwell. That means he goes home with you. And I said he, and I want to tell you why. Because the Bible butchers Greek in order to make sure we know the Holy Spirit's personal. 
The word uh, for spirit in Greek is neuter, and it should have a neuter pronoun that goes with it. But the biblical writers break the rules of Greek in order for us to know the Holy Spirit's personal, and so they use a masculine pronoun to refer to the Holy Spirit. And that tells us he's not an it. Do you understand what I mean by that? An it. He's not an object. He's not some kind of nebulous spirit that's out there. He's personality. He wants to walk with us and live with us, and he goes home with us. He watches what you watch on TV. It's true, isn't it? He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. And he knows when you've been bad or good. It does. Santa Claus is ripping off our theology. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He lives with us. He dwells in us. That's true of every Christian. And so the Bible talks about the indwelling. You can find this. I don't have time to go to these verses, but John chapter 14, verse 17. He will be with you, and he will be in you, in, inside. It's, it's with and in. Like, he accompanies you, but he's there living inside of you. And uh, uh, that's still, I haven't plumbed the depths of that. Romans 8, 9, and 11 talks about the Holy Spirit being in us. 1 Corinthians um, 5.16 talks about the Holy Spirit being in us. 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy 1.14, if you want some references. So this is God's presence through his Holy Spirit. He's the, the presence of God that's mediated to us. We're, we're not alone. He, Jesus said he will not leave us as orphans when he, he ascended into heaven. He didn't say, all right, I'll catch you guys later, and uh, you're on your own until heaven. Hang on. He said, I'm going to send another comforter, and it's needful that I go away. It's better that I go because he will come and live with you. He will live in you. Okay? Jesus, as long as he's in the flesh, he can't live in each person. You understand? He does that by his spirit. Okay? So I'd like you to notice that first thing. The second thing is this. It has to do with a new kind of power from God. The first thing has to do with a new kind of relationship, one in which the Spirit of God lives in us, and we have real deep communion. Do you know, with other people, uh, we, we have to deal with each other in an external world where they are other than us. There's a you and an I in any type of conversation we have, and they're other than us. When the Holy Spirit comes, He lives within us, and, and it's, it's deeper than that. It goes down to the very spirit of who we are. And I don't know if the Holy Spirit's ringing your bell on that, but I hope that you're getting the fact that this is the deepest and most intimate relationship you can ever have is with the Holy Spirit, okay? So he dwells in us in a powerful way. But the, the second thing, and this is what this verse is about, it has to do with a new kind of power from God, one in which the person, the Holy Spirit, enables you. So we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're dwelt in by the Holy Spirit, if you prefer, but then we're also filled with or infilled by the Holy Spirit. And this is a different verb altogether, okay? In one sense, we're, we're dwelt in, but then there's another sense in, in which God wants to fill us with his Spirit. He wants to fill us with his Spirit. And this, this uses, the Bible uses two different words for this depending on who the author is. If it's Luke who wrote Acts and Luke, then uh, he uses one word, and it means to uh, to cause something to be completely full. So when it talks about them being filled with the Holy Spirit, the, 
the Spirit came and filled them up. Okay, filled them up. It's more than just being indwelt. This is this is some kind of empowering because anytime you see filled with the Spirit, there's usual there's usually an action that follows that. Initially, the action was they spoke in tongues. And, and then following that, there's other things. Like Peter, when he walks in, Ananias and Sapphira have lied about their giving in the offering. Remember that? Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, said, you're lying. And he said something to them, and they died. I'm not comfortable with that. Are you? Anybody else <laughs> comfortable with the fact that full of the Holy Spirit meant somebody died? But that's what the Bible says, and it says that fear of God fell upon the church. And many people came in because they realized we don't, God is not to be trifled with. He's real. We don't mess with God. He's real. So Luke uses one word. Paul uses a different word, but its, it's definition is very similar. To cause something to become full. Luke's word, for whatever reason, it means uh, to cause something to be completely full. Paul's word, to cause something to become full. It doesn't use completely. It just says full. And so whatever words they're using, I think they're probably intended synonyms to mean the same thing, that the Holy Spirit comes and fills us up okay, to cause something to be full. And that's what this is talking about. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, upon all people. And then there are things that are going to follow that. He's talking about being filled with the spirit, not just indwelt, but filled so let's go to our passage. I know that's a, a long introduction, but it was more than an introduction. I hope you realize that. Okay, so let, let's look at chapter 12 and uh, verse 1, and we'll just read this, this verse 1. Now, about spiritual gifts, or about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be uninformed regarding the gifts of the Spirit. Hey, okay, let's, let's pause here for a moment. And uh, what Paul is saying here is when it comes to spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts are things that the Holy Spirit does through us as we cooperate with him. Everybody good with that? As we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, he does supernatural things through us. So this is not so much, uh, it can be because there are gifts like this, but the ones we're talking about here are not abilities that we have. They're abilities that God gives Okay, you, you know what I mean? Like, if you're uh, able, well, maybe I'll come back and, and come to that in just a moment. This, the point that I'm trying to make here is that these are more than just enhanced abilities. These are spirit-empowered abilities, all right? So he says, I don't want you to be without knowledge when it comes to spiritual gifts, and I thought, what a strange thing to say, because a lot of times when I hear presentations of spiritual gifts, I think of these are not things that we figure out. These are not things that we can wrap our minds around. And there's some truth to that. These are not things we should even really be trying to think critically about. We just need to trust God and let it happen. Okay? And, and a lot of the church has just bought that up and said, well, that must be true, because we can't really understand God. He's mysterious. He's beyond us. But listen to the words of Scripture. I don't want you to be without knowledge when it comes to spiritual gifts. Do you hear that? I don't want you to be without knowledge. So what he's concerned about here is that when it comes to operating in the spiritual gifts or letting God use us, that there is information that needs to be communicated. 
that's a little bit strange because we're talking about supernatural things. It's an area where the Christian life, where knowledge, we would think, is given supernaturally. And in fact, in some of the gifts, the knowledge is given supernaturally. But it's kind of interesting that here these truths are going to be communicated through a learned language. You know, language which can't be learned. These supernatural abilities are going to be language which can't be learned, abilities which can't be taught. And uh, the Bible instructs us like we're going to be taught um, things about spiritual gifts like when we're learning grammar or algebra. A person who knows the workings tells those who don't know the workings. I wasn't super good at algebra. In fact, uh, let me confess something to you. I had to repeat algebra. Two, algebra two. But the way that that happened was my teacher got up in front of the chalkboard and threw formulas on there and said, this is the way we do this. And we went through the processes, and sometimes I could figure out the answer without doing the work. And they were like, nope, you got to do the work too. They wanted to show that you knew the processes in order to accomplish that. Grammar is the same way. We, we have certain rules that... Uh, that teach us grammar. I know this. that's a super boring thing to talk about on Sunday morning, grammar and algebra. But the point that I'm trying to make is that these, these things follow a natural course of teaching. Somebody who knows these principles communicates them to people who don't know them. And I'm not saying I'm trying to do that. I'm saying this is what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to say to these Corinthians who are, are exercising the gifts of the Spirit, but there are some things that have gone awry with them. And so what he wants to do is communicate principles that will govern the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but uh, the gifts of the Spirit are subject to the person that's being used used in them. Like, if God wants you to speak in tongues, but you don't want to speak in tongues, you won't speak in tongues. Because he's not going to force you to. Now, I know there are people out there that say, I just couldn't stop. I don't, I don't know what to make of that, except for the fact that the Bible says the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. So that means that in, in some sense, we maintain control. We're participants, and if we're unwilling participants, God is not going to throw us onto the floor and make us do cartwheels. If you want to do that, do it at the back. <laughs> All I'm saying is that he's not going to force us to do things like that. But what he wants is people to cooperate with him. I think that's the purpose. And so it goes against the purpose to say, I'm going to force you to do this. The purpose is, come along with me, my son, my daughter, and let's cooperate in the work together. And so he invites us to stuff. And that's really scary because that means we have a part to play. He does the supernatural part. We do the natural part. If it's open in our mouth and he's going to fill it with a heavenly language, we still have to speak out. He says, I don't want you to become, I don't want you to be uninformed. The, the uh, Greek word here is a little harsher, at least it is to us. It means uh, ignorant, without knowledge about these things. He doesn't want us to be, to be ignorant. He's going to teach us. A person knowing the work of the Spirit will teach us how these things are governed. So what does that mean? It means that there are principles and there are purposes which are taught like everything else which helps us to cooperate in those things that can't be taught. So what I hope to see is that sound thinking and spirit power, they're not enemies of one another, but they're mutually supportive of one another. The use of spiritual gifts 
can have a negative impact on a church if they don't use them with wisdom and knowledge. I just heard a story yesterday about some church service that was happening, and uh, somebody got up and prophesied a word. And then a little while later, somebody else got up and prophesied. Uh, uh, and by the way, thus saith the Lord, that was not me. So one person said this word. The other person said, that was not me. And then a word came back, miraculously, this other person. Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> it's like a battle between that's not, the, that's not the unity the Spirit desires in a church service. But you see, the, there's a problem in that. When it's not done correctly, there can be a negative impact. And what seems to me is happening in Corinth is that they've elevated some gifts above the others. They put tongues way up there because prophecy, in some sense, and you could fake tongues, you can, but it had a kind of otherworldliness about it that prophecy, because it's spoken in a known language, wouldn't have had. Hey, there's like an elevated sense of something supernatural is happening here, and people gravitated towards that. And so there were some abuses, and people were using it to put themselves on a pedestal, like, look how gifted I am. Look how gifted I am. And they were using it in abusive ways, and that happens. Sometimes prophecy is used as a, a bully pulpit against people. And we have to be aware that God has direct intention for what he's trying to do and and not misuse those gifts so they can bring reproach upon the body of Christ. They have to be used with wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is knowing about when and how the gifts should be used. And knowledge is about, it has to do with what they're for. Okay, so it's fascinating to me that in this area that's been often abused, it's, it's thought by many to be in competition with thinking, but Paul says, I don't want you to be without knowledge here. I want, I want you to have certain knowledge about the gifts of the Spirit. We're not just going to run into this thing haphazardly and do it uh, without purpose. We need to understand what this is all about. And so he gives some direction uh, in all of this. So it's the plain uh, teaching of Scripture that these gifts need to have teaching go with them. So let me talk about some of these things here. We won't be able to read all of this, but I'd like you to read through uh, verse 3 at least with me. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray by mute idols. Then it says, therefore, I want you to know, he's telling them the knowledge, that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one could say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, here he's saying that the gifts of the Spirit, one thing that we need to know, the gifts of the Spirit are there to lift up Jesus. Come on, say amen to that, because I really hope this will sink home. It's not about uh, some wild prophecy out there. The gifts of the Spirit are intended to lift up Jesus. It's intended to promote the gospel. It's intended to build up the church. It's, it's, it's intended to promote real life, not just a good feeling. Sometimes when the Spirit comes, we have good feelings, and I'm glad for good feelings, aren't you? When that happens, a lot of times it feels like cool water washing over my soul, but that's not the point. The point is that Jesus, the knowledge that transforms lives from a destiny in hell to a, an eternity in heaven, that that knowledge is known and promoted in the world. 
both in our lives and around us. That's what the purpose of the Holy Spirit is. He, when he comes, Jesus said, he will speak of me. He will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Aren't you glad for that? Okay. So the gifts of the Spirit are to exalt Jesus. It says no one speaking by the Spirit of God can say Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And I think what he's talking about here is the fact that there are counterfeit gifts that are out there. When he says in verse 2, look at verse 2 with me, you know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced and led about or led astray by mute idols. There's kind of an irony in this because the thing that's calling to them is an idol that can't speak. And the hint here is that there's supernatural forces at work behind this, that the devil has counterfeit miracles to replicate what God's trying to do in order to lead people astray. Look at, I mean, look at what happened when Moses went to Egypt. The magicians could do miracles of some kind or tricks. I don't know what they were. Look like miracles, sounds like miracles. But Moses's, Moses's miracle was bigger, wasn't it? And it ate up all the other little miracles. And here, here's the point that I'd like to make by that, is that Satan has power, but God's power is greater. And, and we want to be on the right side because his power is big enough to conquer the power of the enemy. And so a lot of people are fascinated with witchcraft because they feel that there's certain power in it. And I'm not going to deny that. But what I want to say is that God's power will overcome the enemy's power, both now and in the end. So there were these counterfeit miracles that were taking place, and there were counterfeit prophecies that were happening. And these people were were led about by some other, some people were led about by some other spirit. And their message was contrary to the message of the spirit. It was preaching and proclaiming a different gospel. Sometimes we get kind of weird about this, like, if somebody's demon-possessed, we've got to get them to say the magic formula that Jesus is Lord, and that magic formula will release them. And I want to tell you, I don't think that's what's intended by this. Because uh, even the demons that were filling the man with many, Legion, remember, he that man came out running, Jesus, Son of God, are you here to destroy us for our time? He had no problem recognizing the legitimacy of who Jesus was. And demons, I don't think, have a problem doing that. I think they could say a little phrase. The problem here is that it comes to what is the Spirit promoting? Okay, They might say, yes, Jesus is Lord, but we don't want you to follow him, and we're going to do everything to fight against that. Okay, And Jesus is cursed is another thing, and uh, no one speaking by the Spirit of God. Now, here's an interesting irony. Paul writing by the Spirit of God, writes down the words, Jesus is cursed. Do you hear what I'm saying? That this, the point isn't the mouthing of the words. The point is nobody has that kind of message. Nobody has that kind of message if the Spirit of God is promoting them. Okay? The Spirit of God promotes Jesus and does not not promote Jesus. Right? <laughs> right. Okay, so... Uh, it lifts up Christ. So by the in- influence of the Holy Spirit, Christ is lifted up. The Holy Spirit applies the gospel to the church, builds the church up. Uh, the Bible says, and because some people have faked stuff like this, there's a whole group of people out there now that are very anti-supernatural within the church, and they've written books on it. 
And if you know anything about that kind of movement, you know what it's about. They, they want to shut it all down. They think either we're crazy. So they won't probably argue the legitimacy of our love for God, but they'll think we're misguided or worse, we're possessed by the devil because we believe in spiritual gifts. And what I, I find more convincing every day is that the, the power of the Spirit is available for us today. Okay? I can find no scripture that suggests that the power of the Spirit left. There's no place where Paul says, oh, but this will happen until the last disciple dies. Can you imagine John's laying down on his deathbed somewhere around 80, 90, and miracles are happening in the churches all around. And then John breathes his last, and somebody's, like, going to pray for and And they, oh, no, what just happened? It stopped. Went to, he drove the Chevy to the levee, and the levee was dry. Right? So I think that you'll find in the early church, and not just in the early church, but the church fathers following them, you find testimonies of miracles. Within the first two or three centuries, there's a book by a guy named Ronald Kidd, uh, Healing Through the Centuries. And then there's another uh, book by, I think it's Stronstad, and he talks about uh, spiritual gifts or miraculous gifts in the early church, and it goes beyond the first, uh, you know, the last disciple who died. So I don't think you can make a case. Why did they fall out? I think it fell out through neglect. People began to neglect the gifts of the Spirit, and so we see less and less of them, and there's other reasons as well. I've got to move on, but I, I think that's part of it. Uh, the Bible still says, by the way, if we're, we're going to use the Bible as our source of uh, faith and practice, then we need to remember the Bible says don't despise prophesyings. Why does it say that? Because some people are abusing it and saying, well, if this is the way it's going to be, we're not going to have that anymore. And so the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, don't despise prophesying. 1 Corinthians 14.39, Paul says don't for- forbid to speak in tongues. Don't forbid people from speaking in tongues. Because there's an abuse, and he's dealing with it, and he's saying, look, if you're in church, it doesn't benefit anybody else except yourself to speak in tongues. So if you're speaking out for everybody to hear, prophesy. Ask God to let you prophesy rather than to speak in tongues unless there's an interpretation. Because otherwise, it's lost. You know what I mean? Everybody's got to have the gift of interpretation if somebody else doesn't interpret. So his point is, um, okay, Let's start promoting those gifts which benefit the whole church. When you're in church, his, his context is the in church. It, he says, I speak in tongues more than you all. He has no problem with tongues. He's trying to promote tongues. In fact, at the end, he sets kind of a counterbalance and says, oh, I've been talking about prophecy, and I've been downplaying tongues in the church service, but I want to encourage you not to forbid speaking in tongues. So he's bringing balance back to this. Do you understand? Okay, and then... As I said, the reason for these warnings are because they may have been abused. But you have to you have to test things. You have to test things when it comes to uh, prophesying. Despise not prophesying. And then it says, uh, cling to that which is good. This is in First Thessalonians five. The context is prophecy, but we've misused this verse. It says, um, don't despise prophesying. Cling to what is good, flee every appearance of evil. He's talking about a prophetic word. If it's good, hang on to it. If it's not good, 
dismiss it. Push it away. We don't need that. And so there's times that we have to do that very thing. Also, the gifts of the Spirit are not in competition. We see that in 4, verse 4 through 11. I'd love to read all of that, but there he's talking about how the gifts are for the mutual good. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, and all of them, uh, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, a manifestation of the Spirit is a given for the common good. To one is given one thing, to another something else. And I, I tend to think that this is talking about its function within the body because I think that God is sovereign enough that at any time he could use anybody in any gift that they'll let him. Do you realize who owns the gifts of the Spirit? It's the Spirit. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if the Spirit of God is filling you, the Spirit of God has all of the gifts within himself, within you. At any moment, if you needed to, you don't have to, if you're praying for somebody who's sick, you don't have to say, well, wait a minute, I know somebody at church that has the gifts of healings, and let me call them up. No, you pray for them. Let the Holy Spirit use you. Maybe God's going to heal them through you. You're not healing anybody. You know that? No, we're not healing anybody. God's Spirit will heal them. That's good preaching, Pastor, by the way. All right, but the gifts aren't in competition like, well, they have that gift, and I just have this gift, and it's pathetic. Don't be like that. Don't despise the day of small things, right? Sometimes those it's the little gifts, it's the less, and Paul makes that case, those less um, dignified gifts that receive the most care and the most dignity. All right, the gifts of the Spirit are not for comparing but for complementing. We can see that in verses 15 through 26. Uh, he talks about, um, you know, people comparing. Don't If you're, you're a hand, don't say to a foot. And if you're an eye, don't say to a hand. But I don't need you. Uh, we're not in competition with one another. And we don't need to run around comparing ourselves with one another. In second letter to Corinthians, Paul says, those who compare themselves with themselves are not wise. Those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. That means if we're running around looking at everybody else making comparisons, that is not a wise way to live the Christian life. And it comes at home to spiritual gifts as well. Then we have the gifts of the Spirit are not automatically given, but have to be sought. I want to spend a couple minutes here, and we're going to rush on. But uh, they're not automatically given. They have to be sought. Here's the word in uh at the end of the chapter, chapter 12, verse 31, I'd like you to notice it says here, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. He gives us a focus of there are gifts that are greater than others, but they're not people that are greater than others. Do you understand that? Seek, be eager for the greater gifts. Anybody know what chapter 13 is about? It's about loving with spiritual gifts. Did you know that? Because look at what it says at that first part. Even if I speak in tongues uh, but have not love, I'm just a noisy symbol. And if I have prophecy and can fathom mysteries and all knowledge and have, not, and have faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I, possess, uh, if I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast but don't have love, I gain nothing. 
So this is about how to live within the community of God, and especially with spiritual gifts. What makes you great is not having the gift, it's being a person who loves somebody else in a great way. So that's the love chapter. And then this is sandwiched right between two chapters on spiritual gifts. Look at chapter 14 with me, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So this kind of mirrors what's happening there. They have a a technique in uh, biblical writing that, well, I'm telling you that when they wrote these letters, one of the literary techniques that they used was they would they would sandwich something that's important between two things and would let you know that we're still continuing on the same topic, but this is part of it. Love is part of it. Okay, but he says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. This word for eagerly desire uh, is used 11 times in the New Testament. It can be positive or negative because, you know, we can eagerly desire the wrong kinds of things depending on what your zeal is directed to. Okay, uh, so he mentions uh, these things, and these words sometimes are translated like be jealous or desire or zealous or envy or uh, eager or zeal or covet. It can be translated in those ways. Here, it commands action, and it means two things, to value spiritual gifts, to be committed to them, and to want for God to use you in them. The definition is to be deeply committed to something, with the implication of accompanying desire. In other words, be committed to spiritual gifts. Just because they've been abused, don't give them up. Be committed to them and want them for yourself. Well, that's good for missionaries and that's good for pastors, but what does that have to do with me? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Do you know who's qualified? Anybody who has Jesus in their heart is qualified to be used by God in big ways. And we just seek his empowerment But anybody who's saved could be used in amazing ways, in miraculous ways. We've been living at this low level, a lot of us, thinking that there's a world of impossibilities out there. Instead of realizing with God, there's a world of possibilities. You could could pray for somebody and they could be really healed. You could give a timely word to somebody and they could be delivered. I heard this story yesterday, Michael Brown, who's a, an Old Testament scholar and a committed Pentecostal. He said he was at a, well, he, he was telling about somebody he knew uh, that was at a prayer meeting. And God gave him this word to give to the lady, this man to give to a lady. Tell her, God hates mommies and daddies. God hates mommies and daddies. And he said, that doesn't sound scriptural at all. But it just wouldn't go away. And so he said, I don't know what this means, but um, I feel like God wants me to tell you that God, he hates mommies and daddies. Well, it turns out when she was a kid, her dad would come into her room at night and sexually abuse her and say, let's play mommies and daddies. She got delivered that day because she realized God knew and he cares. The gifts of the Spirit can bring freedom. I mean, (laughs) I don't want to deliver that kind of message unless God wants me to. But man, that can bring freedom. 
being obedient and giving a word in its proper times. Sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that the gifts belong to the person. And the temptation there is that we start seeing that it's from us. The gift is from us, which leads to pride and self-sufficiency. Or we get restrictive, like I can't be used in that way because I'm only used in this way. And can we? Can I encourage you not to think that way about the gifts of the Spirit? Let's think maturely that you and I have the Holy Spirit living in us, and at any time, any gift He could use us in because He's sovereign. And would you just? I'd, could I just encourage you to be open to that? Like maybe you've never seen a miracle before, and I think today. You could find yourself open to a whole new realm of living with God. It's scary because there isn't a counterfeit, but it's also reassuring because we're entrusting ourselves to God. Here's where I think, who, who do the gifts belong to? Well, if you're giving a gift of prophecy, the gift isn't yours. The gift is to the church. God gives his gifts not to us, but through us when we're talking about this kind of spiritual gift. Okay. Or a word of wisdom, like if, or a word of knowledge, like that. Maybe that uh, person prophecy was a word of knowledge that God dropped something into this man's mind and he communicated it at the proper time. Uh, the gift wasn't for that individual. The gift was for the lady that needed de- deliverance. Do you understand what I mean by that? That's who the gift's for. So the man could run around, I've got the gift of prophecy, I've got the gifts of knowledge. Uh, He'd be missing the point. The point is, that's her gift. It's through him. Second mistake sometimes people make is that they think the gifts of the Spirit make a person infallible. If you've been used by God and a gift of the Spirit, it doesn't mean everything you say is from God. Peter, who prophesied on Pentecost, had to work through, in Acts chapter 2, had to work through prejudice in Acts chapter 10, right? The sheet drops from heaven, take and eat. And he's like, I can't eat that, that's unclean. And God says, take and eat, don't call unclean what I've cleaned. And then the whole message was, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And Peter, your natural tendency is going to be irked by that, but you need to go. Being filled with the Holy Spirit didn't erase all of his prejudices. Not immediately, in time. Do you understand? Then, in uh, some time, we don't know the exact dating, but in Galatians, Paul talks about when he came to uh, Antioch, uh, he had to rebuke Peter publicly because when certain people came from Jerusalem and ate with them, he would separate from the Gentiles and treat them as second-class Christians, which was effectively a practical heresy because he was saying, you're not as saved as I am because I'm Jewish. And Paul got right up in his face and said, you're wrong, buddy. And he did it in front of everybody. Peter took it because in Acts chapter 15, he's the biggest defender of Gentile conversion, right? Something changed there. But the whole point is being used by the Holy Spirit does not guarantee infallibility. It means you still you still could be wrong, Okay. And then the gifts of the Spirit doesn't equal maturity. These Christians in Corinth, he's, Paul says, you've got every spiritual gift, but he says, I've got to talk to you like babies. 
spiritual babies. I can't give you the meat. I've got to give you the milk. So, see, a gift can be given to somebody who's still immature, the spiritual gifts. And there's two sides to that. One side is there's hope because God can use us even if we're not there yet. Right? Isn't that hopeful? Okay. But the other side of it is the challenge of let's grow up. Let's not misuse the gifts because of immaturity. And then uh, I just wanted to show you a slide here, and I think I'm going to wrap it up with this because we're past time. Uh, there we go. I, that's kind of small, but I'd like you to see these gifts. I'm going to list them here in chapter 13, chapter 12, excuse me. He mentions uh, mentions nine gifts of the Spirit, and starting in verse 7, Now to each one a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. Okay, To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Excuse me. All these are the working of the one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So I'd like you to notice here three categories. We have uh, gifts of extraordinary knowledge, gifts of extraordinary action, gifts of extraordinary speaking. Are you with me? Can you see those? The gifts of extraordinary speaking are prophecy. That's when you speak as the Spirit inspires you to say certain things that will benefit another person or the church. Okay? Uh, tongues, of course, is a spiritual language that we, we don't know. In chapter 14, it says, when we speak in tongues, our mind doesn't know what we're saying, but the Spirit is speaking through us with words which can't be uttered. Okay? Romans chapter 8 talks about a similar thing. There's something spiritual that's happening there, but God bypasses in that instance uh, our thinking in order to accomplish something. And then there's the interpretation of tongues. So as we're in a church service, for example, if somebody speaks out in a loud voice and they feel prompted to speak out in tongues, somebody else is given an interpretation. I'd like you to notice this isn't a translation. Okay, It's not a word-for-word translation of the spiritual language. It's the sense of what's being said by the Spirit. Okay, Then you have extraordinary knowledge. This is when uh, God um, gives you some kind of uh, wisdom, supernatural wisdom, like you know what to do in this particular situation. It's not that you figured it out. It's not that you're incredibly wise. You might be wise, but that's not the reason. God has given you a clear direction of action. Okay? And it might be something that's for you, and it might be something that's for somebody else. Then there's word of knowledge. This is where a piece of knowledge, God is all-knowing, and he knows things that we don't know. Sometimes he can put that unknown knowledge to us in our mind. This isn't a psychic gift. This is a spiritual gift where he puts that in our mind. Remember, I think it was Elisha that he kept knowing what was going on in the king's bedroom, right? The king of Aram or Syria. He kept knowing, and they're like, I've got a spy in my in my house because anytime I'd go to do something, Israel's there to meet me. How is that happening? And one of his guys goes, well, they got Elisha. God's telling Elisha what you're going to do. That's, the, that's a word of knowledge. It drops in somebody's brain. They know something that they wouldn't otherwise know except it's been supernaturally revealed. My mom had this gift. 
right? She knew. The, she operated in the gift of knowledge and the gift, of the word of wisdom. Luke, you need to come home right now. That was practical wisdom God gave her. I know you're getting ready to do something wicked. She didn't ever say that, but the phone call tone suggested it. Come home right now. She knew God didn't reveal to her well, maybe even what we were going to do. I hope not. Okay, and then um, along with that is the discerning of spirits. This isn't where you see demons or angels. What the discerning of spirits is is when you know what's, what's motivating a particular thing. Like maybe somebody is acting a particular way and you sense that's motivated by the, the devil. Or maybe they're being spiritual, but you realize, okay, that's motiva- motivated by their human spirit, like it's fleshly. They're not re- what they're really doing is not of God, it's of them. They want to look good. Okay, that can happen. Or discerning spirits can also tell when it's the spirit of God at work. And this is a this is a, a gift that's given in a the moment of need. We don't just carry this resident. We'll have the Holy Spirit resident, but this gift, the Bible talks about manifestation. Manifestation and the, the word for that is akin to the word for lightning. It comes when it's needed. How many love that? God, give me the gift when I need it. I don't need to feel resonant. I don't need to feel like I've got this weight of glory resting upon me all the time. What I need to know is that when the time comes, you're going to meet me there, and it's going to be available. And then you have extraordinary action. These are things like when incredible faith comes. I remember hearing about our uh, youth camp in Kansas, that there was a tornado headed towards it, and... uh, one of the great, and I can't remember his name now, but one of the great leaders uh, in the Kansas Assembly of God, he stood up and he rebuked the tornado, and it split in two, and it went around the camp, and it rejoined on the other side. And there's a lot of eyewitness testimony to that. I think God gave him a gift of faith to be able to do that. You know, and that's that's where those gifts of faith come in. You have gifts of healings, and I'd like you to notice that gifts of healing in the Greek, both words are plural, gifts of healings. There are different kinds. Okay, God can heal the big stuff, and he can heal the small stuff, and he can use us in ways to heal different things. He's not just a God of headaches. He's a God that can control the big stuff too. And then miraculous powers or uh, miraculous workings could be another one. These are extraordinary actions. So the the question that we have to come to is, in that moment of need, do we have the right tool? Have you ever tried to use the wrong tool? Uh, That's frustrating, isn't it? So each of these gifts, they could be used in a particular setting. And we need one another because we minister to one another with them. But we also minister to the world. I'm amazed to find out that of Jesus' miracles, only three of them were done in the synagogue. Do you know the rest of them were done out in public somewhere? So that means, if that's any paradigm to follow, that God's gifts for us could be used. I think there's 34 miracles in the Gospels that are these kinds of miraculous workings, and three of them were done in a synagogue-type setting. The rest of them, outside. So God may want to do that with us, too. You might not have experience with all the other gifts, but my question to you is, are you available God can do uh, amazing 
things. These things don't happen to every person every day, but they do happen. And if we're available, God can use us. Why don't they happen more? Sometimes we're not looking for where God's working. Sometimes we haven't been asking for God to work in this particular way. Sometimes we haven't been offering ourselves. We might ask God to use us, but then the time comes and we balk at the opportunity. We don't really offer ourselves completely. You have to be willing to put yourself out there, and even if necessary, to be God's fool. Are you willing to do that? Sometimes we haven't been believing, and then... um, Sometimes we haven't been repenting like there's sin in our lives and it it clogs up the process. Then another reason that's totally unrelated is that there's an element of sovereignty and mystery in this. That the Spirit, it says in verse 11, the Spirit distributes these gifts as He will. He's, He's the one that's in charge of these things. Listen, I'm concerned about some of the abuses, but that doesn't deny the reality. I sympathize with those who have seen the misuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they are misused. There were, during COVID, I watched some conference online, and I'm telling you, people just got up there, and they were, I guess, prophesying whatever they were thinking out of their imagination. It was a bunch of nonsense. And the world sees that. And they group us all together and go, those are a bunch of nuts. You guys believe that? And things have been prophesied that didn't come true publicly by big figures. And I'm, what it does for me, because I know the legitimate, what it does for me, it says, I don't want the fake, I want the real. I'm not going to settle for nonsense. I don't care if it's big and blustery. What I want is, I want the real. Do you want the real? Do you want to be used? What if your kid is sick? Do you want to be able to lay hands on them? And see God heal them? I want what's real. And I hope you do too. Well, if you haven't been used in the gifts of the Holy Spirit today, you could ask him to be used. You could ask him, God, will you use me in these ways? That's the invitation. Let's stand today. Thanks for your gracious attention. It's probably... seemed heavy and a lot. But I hope somewhere along the line, God spoke something to you. And if I could sum up, it would be this. God wants to pour out a spirit on you and use you. Not so you can be great, so that he can be great. Not so that all the attention can be on you. Sometimes it will be. But so the attention can be on him. Not so that you'll just be benefited, but so that the church and the world could be benefited and God's purpose could be benefited. So, who's the who are the gifts of the Holy Spirit for? Well, they're for everyone. By what power? By the power of the Spirit. To what end? To the salvation of the world. That's what the gifts of the Spirit are for. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.